The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, good morning, everyone. We're going to do something very strange and get started on time. Since we've had an extra hour, we ought to be able to do this today, one day out of the year. All right. All right, let me just share with you a little update. Uh, this morning we were to have Arabic Bible Outreach Ministry with us uh, remotely, but they are unable to be here today, so that will happen next Sunday morning at 9.45. So uh, I don't know if I said that before or maybe mentioned it on Wednesday or something, but uh, that's what the situation is uh, for them. Nothing, uh, nothing serious, just... Uh, a scheduling conflict came up. So, but they did send us a letter uh, here, and uh, they just mentioned about the uh, devastation that occurred in Lebanon with that uh, great explosion that occurred at the uh, port there, one of the storage facilities or a boat or something. You remember that? Uh, hundreds of people lost their lives. Uh, buildings were uh, damaged. Three Baptist church buildings were damaged. Uh, medical care needs. Uh, they were able to send some uh, financial help from, the, from their supporters to 70 households that were helped financially to repair damage, uh, an urgent medical need, supporting a church youth group who are ministering at the epicenter of all this. And um, then they also sent some financial support to uh, more remote churches in Lebanon, not right near the blast, but there's great economic devastation there in that country as well. Uh, they've also been able to relocate a storage place for some of their gospel literature. And uh, as you know, they, are, uh, they have branched out from their early beginnings in doing purely electronic or web-based ministry to printing Bibles distributing Bibles uh, and sending some missionaries to the Middle East for work there. And so uh, that's a, a wonderful testimony. But keep that all in mind as we uh, are able to enjoy ministry, Lord willing, from them uh, next week. All right. Um, as far as our Bible teaching today is concerned, let me uh, encourage you to open your Bibles to uh, the Psalms. Uh, we'll start with a couple of verses there in the Psalms. And the, uh, the message that I'm bringing here this morning is just really to clean up uh, the last uh, details from our messages that we've done two or three times already on Old Testament texts to use in evangelism. Um, and then I wanted to finish up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I realized uh, that in my zeal to study 1 Corinthians 11, I left behind uh, a few details in 1 Corinthians 10 that I hadn't covered last time. So uh, we want to touch on that if we can as well. So Psalm 118 this morning, as we do the first part of our message, and that has to do with Old Testament texts you might want to be familiar with in uh, working with your Bible and evangelism. To those that don't know the Lord, uh, these are often ones that come up in the New Testament Ministry of the Gospel, Psalm 118.22. Several times you'll maybe know that this occurs in the New Testament. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. 
So the Messiah will be rejected is what this text teaches us. And um, that was done by the Pharisees, but then also uh, the whole nation of Israel and still uh, all those who reject Christ even today. Uh, Isaiah 8.14, I'll just uh, mention as well. Keep your finger in the Psalms there. But uh, let's see. Isaiah 8.14 says, He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So, uh, a related text, although here not uh, talking about the building stone that was rejected or chief cornerstone, but at the same time the Lord functions as a stumbling block, a rock of offense for those who reject him. Number two, the Lord taught that uh, on this, uh, many will fall on this stone or the stone will grind them to powder. So that stone is used, that the imagery of a stone is used both in terms of a kind of a, a, a cornerstone, the foundational rock around which the church is built, but also as a stone that is a stone of judgment, a stone used for crushing uh, opposition. So, the Messiah will be rejected. Uh, then Psalm 34, since we're there in the Psalms, this is another verse that you might, you should be familiar with. Psalm 34, verse 12. Actually, Peter uses this verse in some of his writing. It says, Psalm 34, 12, Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. So God blesses the righteous and He's against the evil. Just a very brief summary of that text. But you might use that text in evangelism uh, to ask your uh, respondent, uh, you know, have you kept your tongue from evil? Have you uh, kept your lips from speaking lies? Have you departed from evil? Have you done good? Have you sought peace and pursued it? Just some metrics for uh, testing the conscience, if you will, uh, of a person like you might use some of the Ten Commandments or other texts in the Old Testament. Even the summary of the Ten Commandments. Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Or have you loved God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The answer to those questions is invariably going to be no, 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 and no. And hopefully that would uh, kind of awaken the conscience a little bit of a person to whom you're speaking as to their need for the gospel of Christ. So the Old Testament is nothing uh, to be left behind, that's for sure. Okay, third text. I'm just plowing along here because as I told uh, Betty when uh, she came in, I've got so much here on my on my desk to share with you. I'm just going to keep moving here. So, um, Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3 and verse 34. This I've picked up also from Peter. As, as, we, as I've studied the book of Acts, I found all these passages that refer back to the Old Testament. And I've often wanted to do a a graphical, there are graphical representations of this, but I've kind of wanted to do one of my own where you show the New Testament and you show arcs or lines back to the Old Testament where the writers are referring. 
and uh, kind of make it clear how many references there are. And if you look at them, it's 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 incredible. That gra- if you did that whole graph in a line, it would just be loaded with arcs to show the connections. But I went beyond the Book of Acts and I showed. I looked at some in other portions of the New Testament. And here is one in Proverbs 3.34. Surely he scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. So he, he abases the proud and elevates the lowly. Is another way of saying what he has here. So God gives grace to the humble. That is the case uh, in the New Testament as well and in the Lord's ministry. Now, we have a number of other texts as well. One of them was mentioned by uh, Brother Ben, and uh, he's often brought this up over the years to us to remind us, and I have as well. And that is, you don't have to turn there, you already know it, Genesis 1.1. When you're talking about ministering the gospel to the lost, and I hope you're concerned about that, I hope in your life and uh, your, your connections and work and school and home and all, you're concerned about that. But there's a real problem, especially before Darwin, but especially since Darwin in the 1850s, uh, that people just are comfortable in their maybe uncritical acceptance of evolution or their full-bore adoption of it. Uh, And so they don't have any kind of foundation upon which to think in categories of God or, or the Bible or sin or punishment because they just think they are, they've been taught successfully, I might say, by the educational uh, machinery that they are just you know, biological machines, essentially. And that when they die, then, then uh, you know, the fittest have not survived and they're just another cog in the timeless... Uh, natural processes of evolution that go on and on and on. But we must start with creation and remind people that it's ridiculous to suppose that you come from nothing uh, uh, or a big bang or probably most people just go back to you know the primordial soup of the ancient oceans and you know, the lightning bolts that struck that and made amino acids and poof, then they came into being. Uh, it's just utter folly. I mean, think of, think of the ancient, ancient myths of creation. It's no different than that. It's just a modern version of it that people eventually will realize, maybe not in this life, but eventually will realize that it's complete bunk. And how could they believe such a thing? So we have to uh, work with folks on the level where they start, and that would include at the beginning of the Bible in creation. Paul started this way in Acts 17 with the Gentiles because they also had a problem with the doctrine of creation. So with Darwin, it's not really new. In fact, uh, all of the creation narratives from the ancient times existed in Greek philosophy, and so they had... You know, all kinds of different ideas how the creation came about. Somebody thought it was this way, somebody thought it was this way, you know, Zeus and all these different ones and the Enuma Elish and things like that. Just uh, folly. But uh, especially for non Jewish people. Now, even some Jews, though, if they're secular Jews, probably don't adopt the belief of their fathers 
in the Bible starting in Genesis 1.1. So even there we'd have to start with, uh, with creation with them. Um, another text, if you're jotting these down, uh, you want to write down Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6. Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. And that son is mentioned again in Isaiah 9.6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon His shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. By the way, I read that the way I did because I don't believe there should be a comma between Wonderful and Counselor there. I think some of your modern translations will have that correct. Uh, of course, this is a modern translation, but they followed a, an ancient, uh, more ancient translation. I think they come. it looks like they come in pairs here, so... Uh, two words, wonderful counselor should be together. Mighty God should be together. Everlasting fathers together. And Prince of Peace is a pair that exists together as well. Okay, so those are often texts we use at Christmas time. You're familiar with them. But uh, they certainly are relevant to this text. We do believe that Isaiah is prophesying of a virgin birth here. And the name Emmanuel, clearly a reference to Messiah. There's no question about that. Uh, although some liberal scholars have tried to mess with this, you know, and say, well, he's not really talking about a virgin, he's talking about a young woman. And of course, young women have babies all the time because they get married and have children. And so it just it doesn't fit the, the, the context of the scriptures as it is used in the New Testament. Uh, this, is a, this is a big miracle that uh, the Lord gave as a sign to the king. The king, uh, of course, in this context, if you read it longer, didn't want to ask for a sign. He wasn't quite in line with what God's program was to begin with. So, these support the gospel accounts of Christ and the need to repent in light of the coming of the great king. I guess that's kind of another thing that makes me harken back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 talks about where we came from. The return passages about Jesus tell us where we're going. And so we need to be rightly related to God because of where we came from and where we're going, right? And so if Christ is coming back as king, then you ought to be interested in how am I going to be properly aligned with this king? Many people are not, though, because they don't believe that he's coming back. It's important for us to recognize that he is. The government will be upon his shoulder. And uh, Psalm 2 says the best approach is to do homage to the Son because otherwise His anger will consume you in the way. All right, then uh, Isaiah 61. Since we're in Isaiah, we'll just move forward here. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Where is that quoted in the New Testament? Does anybody know? Rack that brain of yours. 
Tell me, where is that quoted in the New Testament? Um, you know, I don't know for sure if it is, honestly, in Matthew. I know it's somewhere else. Let's see. Doesn't seem to be where I'm thinking anyway. In Luke 4. Luke chapter 4. Did you get it? No? All right. Um, what happens, Jesus is tempted by Satan. So he, remember, Luke, Luke is structured like the birth narrative 1 and 2. And then you have Luke 3, um, where John the Baptist is preparing the way. Then you have the genealogy of Christ at the end of Luke 3. Luke 4, uh, Jesus comes uh, to the wilderness. He's tested by the devil. And then he begins his public ministry uh, immediately following that. And then he comes to Nazareth. And he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Did you notice, by the way, when I read in Isaiah 61 that I stopped in the middle of verse 2? I did that on purpose because that's what the Lord did. The Lord stopped at the middle of verse 2 at proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Isaiah goes on to say, after proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, he says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, Jesus was going to say immediately after the acceptable year of our Lord in Luke 4, he sits down, returns the book to the attendant, sits down, and everybody is looking at him, why, saying, you know, why did he read this? And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa! The people sitting there are like, I never heard that before. The rabbi never told us that before. <laughs> this passage is uh, the Lord saying, hey, this portion of Isaiah 61 fulfilled right before your very eyeballs. Amazing. And of course, he couldn't say the day of vengeance of our God was fulfilled because that wasn't yet to come until the second coming in the eschaton. So he had to stop right there. Shows you that in Isaiah and other prophetic passages, you sometimes will have fulfillment. At, you know, A section of it will be fulfilled and there will be a gap of time until the next section is fulfilled. Very interesting passage, I think. But uh, it's telling us that the Messiah is going to come and preach good tidings. He's going to preach liberty. Liberty from sin, obviously. He will comfort and bring righteousness. He will be an agent of restoration for the people of Israel. Uh, for their cities, for their agricultural uh, setting as well. He'll bring them the new covenant. The rest of That's all Isaiah 61. We don't have time to read all of that. But um, another section in Isaiah 61 is verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Covered me with the robe of righteousness. And so righteousness will spring forth. Verse 11 says, out of Israel, out of the kingdom, 
The Lord will cause it to, to just flourish before all the nations. Wow. That's good stuff. Yeah. So, Isaiah 61 is loaded. You could look at, I mean, I'm not going to add to this list. 34. Did I talk about Isaiah 11 yet? I can't do that. This session is going to get too long now. Um, I, I, well, just look there. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, With the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins. Oh, we could just go on. Faithfulness, the belt of his waist. And then the passage that that, uh, enamors every little Christian boy and girl. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. That's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The millennium. And perhaps also beyond in the eternal state. Uh, people have asked, will there be animals there? I suspect there could be. Uh, I don't know if your beloved Fido will actually be there. <laughs> but they'll, they'll, what, what are you laughing about? Poor Fido. Um, but uh, there will be sufficient joys and blessings in heaven. You won't have to worry about sorrows from the past, even, even dear pets that you have had. But uh, this, this animal-centric thing is very interesting. But more importantly than that, the Messiah will judge righteously. Uh, he will give uh, justice. He will raise up the people of Israel and the world. The Spirit of God will be upon him. You know, this passage also reminds me back to that Isaiah 61 and I one time, in, uh, when we were living in Ypsilanti, received an, a mailing from a church that was advertising a new pastor, I think. And uh, this pastor was applying these verses to him herself, I think. Uh, and I just thought, you know, that is, that's just blasphemous. Just blasphemous. Um, there are some verses in Scripture, my friend, that really don't apply to us. They apply to God or to Messiah. And we can leave those alone. Those are for Him, not for us. They're for, I mean, they're for us to enjoy and to grow and learn from, but they're not to be you know, uh, hijacked and applied to us as if we're some special thing. Um, but anyways, that's Isaiah 11. You have also, don't have to turn to these, but you remember uh, John the Baptist has asked the question by the Pharisees, are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet? No. What's that referring to? Deuteronomy 18. Moses was told by God, I will raise up from among you a prophet. And that uh, is commonly understood to refer to the Messiah as the coming prophet. Uh, And then, uh, how about Jeremiah 31, 34? 
Jeremiah 31.34, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Prophecy about new covenant blessings to the people of Israel, which similar blessings fall to us as Christians in our Gentile churches today, Gentile and Jewish churches, all one in Christ, but we have some of those benefits coming from the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work for us. And then finally, I'll do one more. I wonder how many more I could find if I say read through the, New, the Old Testament and started putting check marks by every one that I saw that could be used for present day evangelism. Uh, the Bible says in Zechariah 13, verse 1, Zechariah 13, verse 1, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. A fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness. Who of us cannot, who know Christ, think of Him as that fountain? There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. They lose all of their guilty stains. What a blessing that is. And that flooding fountain of righteousness and sin cleansing will be applied one day, as Romans 11 says, to the whole house of Israel and Judah. And they will be en masse saved whoever is alive at that time of the coming of the Lord. And uh, I don't know all the details of that, but we've talked about that before. But there will be a massive conversion, a massive turning of the people of Israel to God because of this passage. Uh, There's another one that uh, is like it in uh, chapter... Let's see here. I know it's here somewhere. In Zechariah. Well, I'll I'll pick it up at some point. But Zechariah does it teaches us that uh, the that fountain will be applied to the nation of Israel, and they will look upon him whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And that, I want to say, is in 12 or 14, but I'm just not laying my eyes on it right now. I'll have to look at that again another time. But anyway, you'll find it if you keep looking. What a blessing those promises are that God has made to us. And uh, so those are relevant, especially some of those last ones. Yes, Ben? I didn't go far enough in chapter 12. Yeah, there it is, obviously, right on my page, 12.10. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This gives me an opportunity just to pause and talk to you for a moment about a question of how to interpret the Bible. In this passage, it talks about them looking on the one whom they pierced. Now, was that fulfilled at the cross? 
some have suggested that it was. Why? Well, can you help me find that passage? And uh, oh, let's suppose it's well, it's in John, isn't it? Well, let's go back to section and the section in John and find that. In John 19, right after he says it is finished in verse 30, you have uh, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other. That's verse 32. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately a blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. So how do you address that question of fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10 with what John says in John 19, verse 37? Is it fulfilled at that time? What's that? We have somebody saying probably because they sense that I'm going to spring a trap on them when I, when I say that they're not quite correct. Yeah, so some have thought in their mind, okay, so the soldier came and poked the spear into Jesus' side and then they looked at him. Well, of course they're going to look at him because they're Roman soldiers and that's what they do to make sure somebody's dead. And John saw it with his own eyes, so they looked at him. And so then you think, oh, well, okay, it says they, they will look on him whom they pierced. Who is they in that passage? They pierced? I thought a soldier pierced. What's that? The context tells us it's the house of David here. So did they look on the one whom they pierced in John 19? No. Here's the thing. In order for Zechariah 12.10 to be fulfilled, the Messiah had to be pierced. Okay? So that means that John 19 is part of the activity that had to be done in order to fulfill Zechariah 12.10. But it wasn't at that time that they, quotes, looked on Him whom they pierced. That, according to the context of Zechariah, will happen when the Lord returns. So the fulfillment of the passage is in the far future. Well, we don't know how far from us now, but from Zechariah was in the far future. The fulfillment is in the far future when they look on Him whom they pierced. But in order to look on somebody who was pierced, the guy had to be pierced. So John 19 had to occur in order for Zechariah to be fulfilled in the far future. So we get ourselves all confused when we think, oh, John 19 is the fulfillment of it. No, it's part of the program, part of the process that God used to get to that ultimate fulfillment. Yes, Anne. So uh, Anne is pointing us to Revelation 1.7. So since she's done that, she's going to lead us on this rabbit trail. And that's really going to blow my time, but we'll work at it. Revelation 1.7, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, 
even they who pierced Him. And the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. Well, I think you could say almost in a broad sense, they pierced Him, they being everybody. Whose sins caused Jesus to hang on that cruel instrument? It was my sins that hung Him there. And we should have the Lord's table right now. We're going to have it tonight actually, but it was my sins that caused him to hang there. And in fact, I can put myself in the place of these they, but really I think they is focused on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They will look on him and they will say, that's what our forefathers did. And we are the offspring of our forefathers. And up until now, heretofore, we have accepted their verdict that Jesus was not in fact the Messiah, but now we know that He is. And so we too have been guilty of the piercing of the Messiah. And they will mourn for Him and say, boy, oh, oh, we really messed up because of our sin. And so the Old Testament is loaded with passages that are useful for conviction, for evangelism, for working with someone's conscience, for showing prophecy of the coming Messiah, of what's going to happen, of what has already happened, Uh, prophecies that were fulfilled at the first coming, prophecies that will be fulfilled at the second coming, prophecies like the Zechariah one that required events at the first coming in order to be fulfilled at the second coming. So, you see how you can't just pick up your Bible and open to the New Testament page and start reading. You've got to be familiar with some of the Old Testament text and be able to bring that to bear in your interactions with people. Uh, there's, there's some things there that can be very convincing, very helpful in your ministry to them. Alright, let me uh, pause for one second let that sink in. <clears throat> While we turn over to the second subject for this morning, which is just to dwell again on 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in a way to kind of get us to complete the thought that we left hanging last week. The Apostle Paul is closing out his discussion of idolatry and false worship and getting caught up in kind of double-minded worship, if you will and telling them to flee from idolatry, telling them, in fact, all things are not lawful for them, verse 23, to focus on edification for others. Uh, We are to focus on uh, other people, not ourselves. We're to make judicious use of our liberty. Remember, we talked about that. We talked about caring for the consciences of other people. Uh, Look at verses 28 to 30. Uh, anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for the conscience sake. And then he says in verse 29, conscience, not your own, but that of the other person. And then the question, why why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? So we tried to understand last time how that is that you can't really give thanks for food that you're partaking in that's causing damage to another brother, another brother with a weaker 
conscience than yours in this matter of eating food to idols. So what, whatever is necessary to make sure that you're not doing that damaging work to another brother and that you're giving a clear Christian testimony. Somebody says to you, hey, that was offered to idols. You say, okay, if you're making, if you're making an issue out of that, then I'm not going to eat it. But if the issue is not made out of that and it's just a slab of meat in their mind, then there's no problem for you to eat it. You see that? So the context of the social interaction or whatever kind of dictates whether an act, eating the meat, is bad or good. And that blows people's minds because sometimes they think, what are you saying? You're saying, I can do something in one context that I can't do in another. If I do it here, it's okay. But if I do it here, it's a sin? Wow, that's kind of... That's kind of hard. I mean, that means I've kind of got to think about what I'm doing, where I'm at, who I'm with, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it it is the case. That's what the Bible's teaching here is. And we're to be doing all of this uh, concern and care for others. Verse 31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The ultimate standard of our behavior is, is not really the consciences of others or even our own conscience. It's the, you could say the conscience of God. It's the glory of God. Watching out for others, edifying others, using our liberties properly, caring for others' conscience. All these things need to be done in order to honor God with a view to honoring Him, not ourselves. And so, in this verse and the next one really gives us kind of guidance very high-level general guidance about how we're to conduct ourselves. The honor of God and the help of others. In verse 31, do all to the glory of God. And then verse 32, give no offense to any of these groups of people so that we can say, if my activities are not doing both of those things, then I need to adjust my activities, my practices, my beliefs. I need to honor God. Yes, even in the small things, eating and drinking, my choices in those areas can affect other people and cause them to stumble or to be edified. Um, I have used this in a more lengthy exposition on the question that has often come up about alcoholic beverage, uh, that it is necessary for us, whether we eat or drink, underline, drink, that we must do that to the glory of God. And so you have to be very careful about that matter. Are you doing that to the glory of God? Or are you doing that because motivation, because you want to? And so for me, as a person in the position that I'm in, I have to watch out for how I influence other people. And so as for me in my house, no alcohol at all. Because I don't want to cause anybody to stumble or have any question about that matter. Then, verse 32 and 33 tells us to not cause unnecessary offense. Give no offense, either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Often this verse has been used to focus on the last part or the division of humanity into three groups, Jews, Gentiles, and church. And that is a valid point, but it's not the point of the verse. 
In other words, as you look at humanity, you have unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Gentiles, and believing church members drawn from both of those other groups. So some saved Jews, some saved Gentiles in the church in this age. That's, that's all well and good. Um, but what we're concerned about is not giving offense to those people in whatever group they happen to be. Verse 33, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So he's trying to avoid unnecessary offense. Now why does he say unnecessary here? No, he doesn't. So I have to give a justification for why I said it in light of the text. He says give no offense. Um, I use the word unnecessary not because the text has it, but because the word offense is quite broad in the English language. There are things that Christians do, like calling for righteousness, that are offensive to the world. These kinds of things do not count under the heading of this kind of offense. uh, Because it's not a cause of stumbling. Otherwise, we could never utter a word about Jesus in many places in our culture, but because it would be considered offensive for us to do so. So this cannot be used as a way of saying, just keep your mouth shut and never talk about the gospel. That's not the case. I would need, uh, you know, I wouldn't need such a qualification of unnecessary if we had a different word for offenses that relates to giving the truth because we cannot and should not avoid such offenses. We must actually just continue giving the gospel regardless of whether it offends somebody. The point is that offenses due to our behavior in areas not related to the truth, those kind of offenses should be minimized in order to reduce obstacles, unnecessary obstacles to the propagation of the gospel. But where we are promoting, proclaiming the gospel, we can't apologize for causing someone offense at that. That's just the way that it is. It's kind of like uh, the difference between giving a cause of offense, that's the kind we're trying to avoid, and taking offense on the recipient end. That's the kind we can't avoid. If somebody's going to be, let's just put it, how can I put it kindly, overly sensitive to our promotion of our faith, that's their problem, not our problem. And unfortunately, if they're in a place of power and you're not, then they can cause you a problem because of the fact that they don't like what you're saying. And that's often been the case in church history, but uh, we just have to go with the flow on that one. And uh, I suppose we can thank the Lord that we live in a somewhat pluralistic society so that we have the opportunity to give the gospel without uh, somebody saying, you have to be quiet. Now, in some countries, they say you do have to be quiet. You cannot convert. The most they'll allow is for you and other Christians to gather together in a church. In some places, they don't even do that. They just close you down. So, give no offense either to uh, any of these groups. You know, don't go amongst the Jewish people and, uh, you know, carrying a ham sandwich and munching on it as you minister along the way. It doesn't make good sense to try to do that. And for example, so, and then finally, uh, the, the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 1 of chapter 11, which should go with chapter 10, by the way, 
that you are to imitate Him as I also imitate Christ, he says. So, um, the command is to imitate the Apostle Paul. And I think this command can be applied in that you can say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a godly example of somebody living in my culture right now and I'm going to follow their example. Maybe I don't understand what I should do. We'll talk about that later in the next service, uh, some issues that you might have with 1 Corinthians 11. Well, I don't, I don't really understand. Well, find somebody who's a trusted Christian voice and listen to them and follow them until you do understand what you're supposed to do. See, does that make sense? Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. That's an application of this. Uh, Paul was following Jesus and we are to follow Paul as he follows Jesus. Or in the absence of Paul, since we don't have him right before our eyes, we follow what he taught as he followed Jesus. How did the Lord handle examples, situations of offense? Well, remember one of them was the people came to Peter and said, does your master pay the temple tax? And the Lord said to Peter when Peter came to him, he said, well, who pays taxes? The citizens or the sons of the king? And, and Peter says, well, the, the citizens, obviously. And Jesus agrees with him. And so, technically, Peter doesn't owe a tax to the temple because he's a son of the God of the temple. Right? He doesn't owe taxes. That's our privilege as believers in Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God. Marvelous truth that is. But, he says, in order to avoid offending them, you know, go catch a fish and you'll happen to find the money you need for the taxes in there, pay that. So the Lord was very gracious toward these people because they didn't know who He was or who Peter was as the Son of God and as a Son of the living God. And so they paid the tax. But in Nazareth, when He taught in the synagogue, in Matthew uh, 13, well, I don't have to turn there, you remember that he taught and they said, you know, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Is he the carpenter's son? I mean, he's a nobody. He's not been educated. He's not a rabbi. He's not of the tribe of Judah or of Levi. Uh, and so they were offended at him because he said, a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. So here's an example of handling offenses. One, don't give them unnecessarily, like the temple tax thing. But if you're preaching the truth, you can't help it. You have to just carry on doing that. And so you remember they wanted to basically throw him over the cliff because of what he was teaching. And he disappeared and, and went on his way. So if you're facing questionable issues in your life, humbly seek out what other godly people would do, like Paul, and apply that and uh, carefully consider the reasons they make those choices and do those practices and you know, imitate them. And that will help you. So, Paul is really... It's interesting because he's taking a situation of the Corinthians in their context. Idle temples, idle meat. All this, it's all around us. Paul, what do we do? And so he kind of guides them through and gives them some principles. Flee from idolatry. You can eat this in certain cases. You don't eat it in this case. You know, kind of give them some guidance 
It's kind of like a Q&A session that uh, Paul is holding with the Corinthians. They have a bunch of questions and he's answering all of their questions in the latter half of the book. And so we get to benefit from that Q&A that he's doing with them. All right, let's pray and then we will take a break here for about 10 minutes and come back for our morning worship service. Father, thank you for allowing us to learn these things in the Bible this morning, both in the Old Testament and also in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. I pray that it's been helpful and mentally uh, stimulating, but also stimulating our spirits so that we would resolve to live godly in Christ Jesus, to use the text of Scripture the way it's been intended and and to live in a way that exhibits um, care for others' consciences and edification and so on, and especially that we would honor You. We don't know best how to do that in every circumstance, perhaps, but we can learn and grow in it. In Jesus' name, amen.